Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science. So, let's get started. Well, hi there. Dave Robinson here. Last week, we devoted the entire episode of Bench Talk to the topic of the herbicide glyphosate. It's called Roundup. And whether or not glyphosate causes cancer, specifically non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Now, that was our June 17, 2019 episode. It's on our SoundCloud page, so check it out. Now, a lot of that research was epidemiological in nature, which means that the researchers were looking at whether people who used Roundup more were more likely to become diagnosed with that cancer at some point in their life. In other words, is there a correlation between glyphosate exposure and cancer? After that story, I wanted to give a little bit more background about correlation analysis in general, but I ran out of time. I promised that I would run that story for you later, so here is that story right now. Now, much of the research that was discussed in that last story on the association of glyphosate exposure and cancer was epidemiological, which means that the researchers were looking at correlations between two factors, the incidence of cancer in people and the amount of exposure to the herbicide Roundup. This might be a good time to discuss statistics for a bit. The paper we just discussed involved a statistical approach called correlation analysis. That's what researchers do when they want to explore whether two factors change in unison with one another. For instance, there's a correlation between the amount of sunlight and temperature. That's because the sun radiates heat. Now, sometimes the correlation is positive, like taller people tend to weigh more, and sometimes it's negative, like the higher you climb a mountain, the lower the temperature. But I'm sure you already know, just because there's a correlation between two things doesn't mean that one thing actually causes the other. Statisticians are fond of saying correlation does not imply causation. Statisticians have identified a number of scenarios where people can reach erroneous conclusions by looking at correlations alone. I guess you could think of these as alternative ways of interpreting the data. First scenario, they call it reverse correlation. So someone living near a windmill, for instance, might observe that the windmill rotates faster on windier days and it rotates slower on calm days. And sure, they might conclude that it's the wind that's causing the windmill to rotate, which is pretty good conclusion. But have you ever thought that maybe the windmill is causing the wind? After all, when the windmill is spinning faster, you would get more wind coming out of the fans, wouldn't you? So they call that reverse correlation. How do you distinguish between the two? Number two, they call it the third cause fallacy. Instead of thinking that factor X causes response Y, maybe X and Y are actually caused by something else altogether, like Z. So there's a simple example. Say you find a correlation between the consumption of ice cream and the number of people who die by drowning. Does eating ice cream cause people to drown? Or does drowning of some people cause other people to eat more ice cream? 
No, probably neither of those things. More likely, it's because there's a third factor. High temperatures, like we experience in the summertime, that probably leads to more ice cream consumption and more drowning because people are swimming more in the summer. It's the third cause fallacy. The third type of faulty conclusions from correlation analysis, they call it bidirectional causation, or you could call it the vicious cycle. So maybe X affects Y sometimes, but then Y affects X sometimes. So for instance, you might notice that serious bicyclers tend to be on the thin side. So maybe thinner people are attracted to the sport of bicycling, but then maybe the act of riding a bicycle a lot makes people thinner. It's a vicious cycle. What came first? Then number four, it could be a complete coincidence. Maybe there is no cause-effect relationship at all between X and Y. The classic example of that is the bald hairy rule of thumb in Russia. If you look at the men who have ruled Russia and Soviet Union over the last 190 years, they alternate between men having a lot of hair on their head and those not having so much hair. So Vladimir Putin, relatively bald. Dmitry Medvedev, hairy. Then it was Putin again, bald. Then before that, it was Boris Yeltsin, hairy. Then before that, it was Mikhail Gorbachev, bald. And it just continues like that, backwards in time, until you get to Nicholas I, who became emperor of Russia in 1825. He was relatively bald. So I sincerely doubt that there's a functional relationship between the amount of hair on the previous ruler's head and who is the head of Russia, it's a complete coincidence. But it is sort of fun to think about. So how do you distinguish between a situation where there is a real causative link between one thing and another and not? In a nutshell, being careful, thinking critically, and gathering a whole lot more data, and hopefully with some different kinds of experiments other than just correlation analysis. End of today's lesson. Thank you. Fortunately, the literature on the links between exposure to Roundup herbicide and cancer was not only done using correlation analysis. They also did controlled experiments in the lab using mice and rats, for instance. They also exposed living animal cells, including human cells, that were growing on artificial media in the lab to study this effect. And then they also looked at the effect of glyphosate Roundup on cells at the biochemical and molecular level, too. Go back and listen to our show of June 17, 2019 to get all those details. That's nice. Pomp and Circumstance was written by Edward Elgar back in 1901 in honor of the coronation of King Edward VII. Four years later, when Elgar received an honorary doctorate from Yale University, the same music was played as he walked off the stage. Then once Yale used it, Princeton wanted to use it for their graduation commencement. And then the University of Chicago used it, and then Columbia University used it, and it sort of went viral after that. So that music has been playing at a lot of high school and college campuses this past month or so. And you know what goes along with graduation commencements, don't you? 
Why, it's graduation commencement speeches. Well, as a college professor, I'd estimate that I've attended something like 50 different college commencement ceremonies in my life. So you'd think I'd be pretty jaded about them by now, but I'm not. I actually enjoy the excitement I feel from the graduating students and their families. And believe it or not, I also enjoy commencement speakers. They're there to congratulate, commemorate, edify, and inspire the graduating students. And I think I just naturally pick up on that. Now, I know, I know, there's a lot of boilerplate cliches that you might expect at a graduation ceremony, like, today is the first day of the rest of your life, or it might be scary, but you are about to enter a world full of possibilities, or this is the beginning of an amazing journey. But it's not all platitudes like that. I always find nuggets of inspiration that are impactful. I'm almost always moved or enlightened by these commencement addresses. And today I want to play an audio clip of one of them. It's the commencement speaker at Boston University this spring. It was Dr. Marsha McNutt, a renowned geophysicist, who spoke to Boston University graduates on May 19, 2019. I'm proud to say that one of the graduates in this class is a former undergraduate student of mine. She just earned her PhD in plant biology from Boston University. Congratulations, Dr. Sanders Olge. Anyway, to tell you a little bit more about Dr. Marsha McNutt, she received a bachelor's degree in physics from Colorado College and then earned a PhD in earth sciences from the Scripps Institute of Oceanography in La Jolla, California. It was there that she also became a certified scuba diver and learned underwater demolition from the U.S. Navy SEALs. And then Dr. McNutt joined the faculty of Massachusetts Institute of Technology in 1982 and has since participated in some 15 major oceanographic expeditions. And she's published 100 peer-reviewed scientific articles. Her research has mostly been on ocean island volcanoes, continental breakup, and tectonic plate movement and uplift. In 1995, she was one of six female scientists featured on the PBS show called Discovering Women. In 2009, Marsha McNutt was made director of the U.S. Geological Survey by President Obama. She was the first woman in that position. In her first year of office, she had four major geological events to deal with. Major earthquakes in both Haiti and China, Then there was a volcanic eruption in Iceland that interfered with Atlantic Ocean airplane traffic. And then there was the British Petroleum Oil Spill. The British Petroleum Company was at that time chartering the oil drilling rig called Deepwater Horizon. This oil drilling rig exploded in April of 2010, killing 11 employees and then sinking into the water and oil immediately began pouring out of this underwater pipe, and it took 87 days to cap this pipe. It's estimated that almost 5 million barrels of oil spilled out of the pipe into the Gulf of Mexico. This oil affected some 68,000 square miles, which is about the size of Oklahoma. BP eventually settled with the federal government and pleaded guilty to felony charges of misconduct and neglect, and they ended up agreeing to pay $4.5 billion in criminal fines and damages. 
I just wanted to remind you about the BP oil spill as Dr. McNutt does discuss it in her talk. She stepped down as director of the U.S. Geological Survey in 2013 to serve as editor-in-chief of the world-class science journal Science. It was Marsha McNutt's effort as editor that led to Science now publishing many of its articles open access so that the public can read its articles for free, which is how we get them to be able to review for you on this show. In 2015, Marsha McNutt was elected president of the National Academy of Sciences. The National Academy of Sciences was established by Congress in 1863 as a nonprofit, non government agency charged with, quote, providing independent, objective advice to the nation on matters related to science and technology and to provide scientific advice to the government whenever called upon by any government department, unquote. There are only about 2,300 members of the NAS, and only the most distinguished researchers get nominated to the Academy. It's one of the highest honors a scientist can receive. So now you're going to hear from the president of the National Academy of Sciences, and what she had to say to the Boston University graduating class of 2019. Now, she might get a little controversial in this talk, so I do want to remind you that this is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming, so the views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. Dr. McNutt speaks for about 13 minutes. And we'll be starting right in with the talk, skipping all the applause and introductions. Now, compared to our medieval ancestors, the ones who came up with these lovely uh, costumes, uh, in many ways, life is easier today. But in other ways, it's more confusing. We're facing a perplexing array of complex decisions that affect personal health, safety, well-being, but more importantly, the future viability of our planetary life support systems, such as clean air, fresh water, biodiversity, rich topsoil, and a comfortable climate. We have more information at our fingertips than ever before. But in today's world of misinformation and disinformation, it's all being weaponized to obscure the truth. So how are you going to easily distinguish what and who to trust so that you'll make good decisions. Now, what I'll argue today is that scientists have established rules for systematically deciding what to trust, and that's, those rules have served society and science well for many years. The basis of trust in science is transparency, control of bias, and the ability to independently verify results. These rules are simply expressed as describe your methods, show your data, declare any relationships that might be perceived to have biased your views, consider what other hypotheses could possibly explain your results, so consider alternatives, and then finally subject your findings to criticism from an independent verification by others. While I've described this set of rules as the methods of science, they don't just apply to science. This set of procedures for deciding what to trust can be applied broadly to proposals or findings based on evidence from many sources. Socioeconomics, marketing, 
social networks, communications, commerce, transportation, or any other areas of human decision-making where evidence and data are paramount. So let's try this out. Let's suppose my hypothesis is that only one in 10 of you graduates will remember in one week's time anything of substance from this commencement address. All right, now let's suppose I gather some data and I find the startling result that half of you remember that the commencement address was about who and what to trust. Should you believe it? Well, the first thing you should do is ask what method was used to survey all of you graduates in order to come up with that 50% number. Suppose I answer that my method was to send out an email to all of you a week later with the subject line, respond with information on the content of the commencement address. That should be your first warning that my survey was flawed. Most of you students would probably look at that email and say, what commencement address? Delete, delete, delete. So only a the few of you who even recall that there was a commencement speaker would even open the email. So the survey will get a very biased result from the few of you that say, oh yeah, someone spoke to us, and those few that then open it, some proportion of them will remember the topic. Those who forgot the speech won't even respond. So this is clearly a result that you should not trust. A better way to collect this data would be for me to randomly call the students and ask them about the commencement speech, but of course that would be a lot more work. So to get trustworthy results requires a lot of extra work. Remember that. Now let's take a more pertinent example. Who should you trust when you go to vote at the polls? A candidate whose platform sounds good because it promises prosperity for everyone? But suppose that candidate is secretive about his or her own business dealings. Look at that. Or, or fuzzy about campaign financing. Or has flip-flopped in the past on issues of importance. Or do you support a candidate whose platform might not be quite so rosy but he or she is transparent about his or her own finances, discloses who has contributed to his or her campaign, and who has consistently worked for policies in the public interest. I personally would not trust someone who has the potential to be biased by special interests, who doesn't disclose personal finances, and therefore may not be working in the public interest. Now, year after year, Opinion polls consistently show that the public rates scientists among the most trusted profession, and what a surprise, politicians among the least. Perhaps if we chose our politicians using the criteria of trust used by scientists to screen their findings, we would have a more favorable outcome with our elected leaders. Now let me give you a real-world example of using the rules of science to solve differences of opinion 
to get to a place of trust. Now, President Brown already told you about my work on the Deepwater Horizon spill. Most of you were mere children when nine years ago, the Deepwater Horizon rig in the Gulf of Mexico exploded. 11 lives were lost and it triggered an uncontrollable oil spill. I was director of the U.S. Geological Survey of the t at the time, and the Secretary of the Interior dispatched me to the Gulf of Mexico to oversee uh, a team of U.S. government scientists and engineers working with BP to contain the oil and control the well. I'd been sent to the front lines of the crisis on account of my prior experience with deep sea intervention and deep sea drilling. But I was joined in Houston by many other talented government leaders. We spent months in Houston with our sleeves rolled up, evaluating the viability of options to stop that spill. Now the US government and BP disagreed on many issues. But we all agreed that stopping the flowing well was the highest priority. Although there was not a lot of trust between the two parties, we all agreed that we needed to rely on science and engineering to solve the problem. And if at any time there was a difference of opinion on the best path forward, we would let the rules of science guide us on how to resolve our differences. We would gather evidence, we would share our data, and we would independently check each other's work until we resolved the disagreement. By relying on the scientific approach, we were able to stop the spill by deploying novel technologies. Now imagine instead that the Deepwater Horizon oil spill were to happen today. What would be the approach in the post-truth era of fake news and distrust of expertise? Perhaps in today's environment, U.S. politicians and BP business leaders would not trust scientists to solve the problem. And science and engineering might not prevail in plotting a course of action on something as important as capping the well. In such an environment, business leaders at BP might insist that since they were paying for the work, and since they were shouldering the liability, they had the right to dictate the course of action. Political leaders in Washington might balk at granting permission for the well control options if BP was unilaterally calling the shots without government input. BP business leaders and US politicians would have no common set of rules, like the rules of science, for deciding how to resolve their differences short of tying up the entire matter in the courts. All the while, the well continued to spill oil. I'd like to think that such a scenario is far-fetched, but nevertheless, the overall recent trend to use gut instinct and the preferences of special interests to replace science and evidence is having real-world consequences. There's no better example than the denial in the U.S. of the urgent need for action on climate change. This places the U.S. in the singular position of being the only nation on Earth 
to opt out of the Paris Accord. Now, I don't want to give you the impression that science and scientists are perfect. They are not. There are bad apples in science, and even good scientists can make mistakes. But the rules of science have self-correcting mechanisms built into them to help ferret out fraudulent work and to correct honest mistakes. This is why, when they are found, they are front-page news. It is the duty of scientists to call out anyone who violates the public trust. So now, in closing, whether the issue is healthcare, economics, education, or immigration, thanks to your university education, you've been instilled with the larger worldview to see beyond just your own lives and that of your own generation. Your choices will have profound and lasting impacts on others near and far, and the world that your children and your grandchildren are going to inherit. I call upon you to make those decisions based on the truth. When you see junk science, call it out. When you don't trust the sources, call them out. When your friends share misinformation on Facebook, set them straight. I do this all the time in a nice, respectful, fact-based, non-judgmental way, but don't let them get away with it because the truth does still matter. Now, there are some moments in this lifetime when we will feel large and important, such as this moment for all of you in receiving your degrees. And there are other times when we feel very small and insignificant. For example, when we stare up at a clear night sky to ponder the vast regions of space and time. But never, for a moment, doubt that your choices matter. Trust wisely, my friends, and help others do the same. The future depends on your choices and, just importantly, how you make them. I'm counting on you, 2019 graduates. Trust well. Thank you. That was Dr. Marcia McNutt, president of the National Academy of Sciences and the commencement speaker at the graduation ceremony held at Boston University in May of 2019. Great advice to the graduates and great advice to all of us. No, today is the first day of the rest of your life, you know. Well, that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word benchtalkradio at gmail.com Now all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives that's www.forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes 
If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMPLP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky, where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.